Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 290, recorded June 28th, 2022. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Brian Aachen. And I'm Nick Moore. Nick, it's so great to have you back. Thanks yeah. for being here. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be back. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like I said, great to have you back. You always send us really fun topics and say, hey, you should think about covering this and covering that and so on. We really appreciate that. But sometimes it's better if we could just have you to tell here to tell people about it. We actually had you on episode 239. You talked about Jupiter Light and MyPy, and that was fun, but that was also over a year ago. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, it takes the community to build this great podcast. So I'm glad to be part of it. Yeah, Ooh, thanks. Awesome. What have you been up to in the last year? Been doing a lot of traveling. Thankfully, since now COVID is less more of an issue. Got to go to PyCon. So I got the PyCon shirt right here. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Did you enjoy your time there? It was amazing. Loved it. Completely loved it. I kept kept on telling everybody it was my geek holiday, like you always say. And, you know, yeah. we're like, yeah, it is our geek holiday. So it was It awesome. totally is. Yeah. <laughs> totally is awesome. Well, I'm really glad that you got to go and you had a good time. So su super cool. Brian, uh, you want to kick us off, but let's just start small this time, okay? Really small. Like... Like like Nano or maybe Pico? No, Pico. We'll Pico. do Pico. So um, Pico. Pico logging is a... So I, I was uh, Anthony Shaw, friend of the show, um, and all-around workaholic, apparently, as far as I can tell. Um, uh, blogged out that there's a... Not blogged. He sent out on Twitter a uh, something about Pico logging. Um, and there was a tweet that says, Pico logging uses a modern extension module tool chain with a scikit build and CMake. So I, I was interested in, I, I haven't looked into the tool chain yet. I'm just looking at Pico logging because it's cool. Um, I was taking a look at it. So uh, Pico logging is a, is, is a fairly new library um, that is, uh, and Anthony says it's, it's in early alpha stage. There's some incomplete features, but um, I'm ready to use it right now uh, because it says, you do it just as a drop, essentially a drop in for uh, the the built-in logging module, but it's four to ten times faster. Why? Why wouldn't that's you cool. want faster? So, and logging is pretty fast to begin with. So, um, that's pretty cool. Uh, so, it's taking a look at it. Uh, uh, the usage is basically you just say import Pico logging as logging, and now you've got just like just like your normal logging. Uh, you set up a basic config, and you can write info and warnings and um, that's about it. Um, there's, you know, why not? So let's take a look at it. Uh, it says it's faster. So, oh, the benchmarks are all cut off. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the screen a little bit. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, they, they're a little bit hard to read, but uh, what this means is the, the first on the left, I, I believe it's the, uh, the time for the normal logging and then, um, and then how much faster the, uh, um, the, the faster one is. I haven't dug into the logging stuff, but basically, for different parts of it or the, the benchmark stuff too much. But um, yeah, for different parts of it, you can see how much faster it is. So anyway, uh, why not? I was taking a, yeah, just, I'm just going to start using it. <laughs> sure. Why not? And one of the things that I think is interesting is obviously not specific to this situation, but as I think about some of the patterns that people use all over the place, different languages and technologies and so on, that don't necessarily make their way over to Python. For example, um, maybe 
like dependency injection and IOC containers and all of that. And I know that it does appear in certain places in like limited ways, but nothing like C sharp and Java, like those are all about dependency injection. That thing where you say, where they say from Pico logging import or import Pico logging as logging. Yeah. Right. That's, that's kind of a really nice way to just say right now, I want to use this implementation of logging versus another without oh, yeah. going through all the, the hoops and stuff, right? Like we're just thinking, oh, that that's that one line right there is is why we don't see a lot of that complexity. I never really sort of tied that together, but it's it's kind of neat, right? Yeah, it's essentially that's dependency injection, but we don't call it that, right? So interesting. <laughs> you don't have to have all the complexity and config and register who's doing what, and, right? And, and so on. No, I, uh, Nick, what do you think about this? Sorry, Brian, didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's okay, Nick. Oh yeah. Um... I saw this tweet and I found it really interesting. But uh, uh, to your point, uh, Michael, dependency injection is not really popular on Python, but the, the, the library, I think that the most popular library that I can think of that uses it is PyTest, right? right? With, uh, um, but, a bit with the fixtures, right? Yeah. And the way they do it is so seamless, but you're right. Dependency injection is something that we don't commonly have in Python because Python is dynamic enough that you don't really need it. Um, one thing I would say is that kind I'm kind even though I love the performance benchmarks, I feel like the change that um, Anthony's uh, is like is going for with the performance would warrant a new API for like a new API for logging. I feel like it warrants it. So I would like to see him like um, maybe change the way we configure. Uh, look, not only like improve um, logging speeds, but also change the way we configure it to. Because like the current standard lib logger is kind of cumbersome to like config, configure. Yeah, the, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, the basic config that you have to that usually the normal use case like he's showing here is that I, why do I have to call that if I'm calling it all the time? Um, mm. um, one of the things that that I, I forgot to point out is uh, Anthony does list the limitations, um, and so there's a limitations page, and if you find more, maybe. So these are reasons why you probably won't want to use it if you're taking advantage of this. So, for instance, it doesn't uh, it doesn't observe um, uh, threads or multiprocessing or log process globals. So, if you're utilizing those, um, this isn't for you. Uh, it's a, a little actually kind of unfortunate because <laughs> that's where logging really helps you is when you're uh, a lot is when you're trying to pull those things sorts of things apart. So, anyway, uh, is the calls is the pickle. Um, Indicative of like it being fast, or is also very small to like. Well, no, probably both. Uh, it's it's um, I, I think it's referring to fast, but um, but there's really just not that much here. Uh, it's and oh, it looks like it's a uh, it's it's CXX and HX. Got some Cython or something yeah. going on there, maybe. Oh, so let's take a look. That at, might be part of the speed bit. Probably <laughs> we'll take a look at this more. So yeah, I haven't dug into the source code too much. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like Bri Brian out in the audience asks, uh, any idea whether this would replace loggers in other libraries, such as Sphinx or something? And I feel like you could monkey patch it out, not do the dependency injection thing, but you could just say, you know, or sort of rewrite the logging a little bit. That's obviously like maybe a less good idea, but it probably would work given it's a compatible API. Yeah. You probably could uh, monkey patch it in. Why not? You yeah. can do anything in software. I, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean you should, but you might be able to. Yeah. 
All right, let's go to the next one. Speaking of things, yeah, well, speaking of things, I'm not sure you should just because you can, but it's pretty interesting. Let's talk about Cheeky Keys. So this one comes to us from Prayson Daniel, also someone who sends us a bunch of good ideas. So thank you to that. Have you either of you seen this one? No. No. It's uh it's it's a project that uses Python and then with Python to use OpenCV and then MediaPipe to control a keyboard with facial gestures like <laughs> raising an eyebrow or blinking or opening your mouth and stuff like that. So imagine you wanted to type or operate a keyboard, but you couldn't use speech or your hands. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. So for some reason you can't type, but you know, I don't know. There, there's there's different uh, reasons. The guy's reasons here, maybe who put this together, it's not <laughs> the pictures are just over the top. The the reasons that you might do it are probably not as common. The reasons he did are not as common as you might. For example, his little baby and he wanted to just be able to control his keyboard without make his computer while holding his baby without speaking because the baby was sleeping. So, uh, but if you go to the website there, it, it has some really good examples. And so sitting here typing and controlling the keyboard, basically for the letters, it's Morse code with the mouth. So you open the mouth either for a long period of time or a shorter period of time, right? And that's kind of interesting. But what I think is more interesting is you would learn about how to use OpenCV and how to use MediaPipe's face, uh, face mesh, provide real-time detection of things like mouth, chin, eyes, eyebrows, and so on. And then you can say, well, if the eyebrow moves away from the the left eye, that means, you know, this character or so on. So like I said, it's mostly Morse code, but then there's a bunch of other things. Like if you want to do a shift, you close the right eye. I want you to hold down the command key or Windows key, you close the left eye. To arrow around is raise the left and right eyebrows. <laughs> or you can do a duck face to move left and right. Like you do a duck face and then you do your eyebrows. <laughs> I got to think that this is like, properly exhausting to truly control the keyboard with like duck face eyebrow let's imagine stuff. how much those in your face you'll be so strong yes exactly they would either be exhausted or so strong probably both like if you want to hit the escape key you wink the left eye and then the right eye for example so that's all interesting and like i said learning about it you know the code is is not um too intense here um let's see what do we got 480 lines for this whole implementation, which I think, and a lot of it is defining constants of like, what do you do when, when these scenarios show up? So yeah, it's just do a pretty cool little face mesh thing and say, um, you know, go through and, and just read the face basically through some video capture stuff here. I'd like to have a combination of this. So a combination of keyboard and this so that, so that I don't have to like have a whole bunch of uh, emojis that I have to type. Or copy and paste, I could just have like one emoji key and just make the thing like smile and hit like the key and it like detects which emoji you want to put. That'd be uh, awesome. I think you could, yeah, I think you could make that happen, Brian. Yeah. I do. Uh, but what I encourage people to do is also check out this video down here that they've got. So he shows some stuff that he's going to, let me turn up the volume here. So he shows him talking and you can sort of see that. It says, okay, look, the problem is I have this baby. <laughs> actual footage of research is this sleepy <laughs> baby on him but what it gets weird is um he went through and he actually tried to apply uh for a coding job at one of the large tech companies you know the fang type things and he did the entire interview you know the like live coding interview section 
with his face without the keyboard. Whoa. <laughs> and he did it uh, not super well, to be honest. It was a little bit slow, but he did actually get his his interview done. At the end, somewhere they ask him to press. Uh, he gets through it and they say, um, could you please press? He had half an hour. And they said, when you're done, press the run button to, uh, <laughs> to get it to, to run. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't press the run button. They're like, what, what do you mean? Why can't you press the run button? He says, does it have a hotkey? And finally, he's like, okay, there, command enter. And he got his face to do a command. He's like, okay, okay, I finished it. Uh, he wasn't hired, but <laughs> but he did complete it. So, I mean, there's there's something of a proof of concept going on here. Oh, that's awesome. I I think I would probably, if it was... I'd be impressed as a hiring manager and request that he retake the test with his, with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. I think he didn't, he never let them know. And I feel like it would have been better if he said, I have a secret to reveal to you. I actually just did that all with my face. I could code a lot better, but I wrote <laughs> a program so that I could do this interview with my face. And I'm pretty good with Python. They're like, wait a minute, you wrote a, all right, all right. We might need to hire you just on that basis alone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, talk about dog fooding, dog fooding your own product. That's that's commitment. Like that's it is the fact it totally is, and the fact he wouldn't press the run button I know. with the mouse because he's like, no, that'll that'll invalidate the experiment. Like, is there hockey or something I could shift around? Like, what can I do? So anyway, uh, yeah. Thanks, Prayson, for sending this one over. Uh, I recommend, if you really are interested in this, watch the video. It's seven minutes, and it's it's pretty wild. That's pretty good. Indeed. All right, Nick, over to you. All right. Okay. Um, following along the theme of maybe something that we did or what you shouldn't maybe have done, um, Google released a next generation um, language model similar to BERT and GPT-3 called uh, Lambda. And I think it stands for language apply language applied uh, model application something like that right so but that's not what i'm talking about today what i'm talking about is has lambda become sentient so there's an article that got uh following after like not too long after um lambda was released which was like this year uh, may of this year um there was this article that came out in all the big newspapers this one is from the uh, from the guardian and essentially, one of their developers released a uh, chat transcription that kind of alluded to Lambda being self-aware. Um, what startled him was that talking, well, well, sorry, he was like, when talking with Lambda via the chat system, he thought it was like a seven-year-old, seven eight-year-old kid that happens to know physics. And what really like raised his eyebrows about what was going on was that um, Lambda replied in one of the chats transcript, Lambda replied, like, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it, but well, that's what it is. And this is one of some of the things that, uh, Lambda, um, said, like wrote back to, um, the, the engineer's name was, uh, Lemoyne, uh, Blake Lemoyne. Well, I mean, this was like a huge, uh, this was a pretty huge thing, um, to the fact that. Who had to take action against this engineer and suspended him because they it's kind of violated their um their terms of like terms of service no terms of service but like terms of working conditions so this is interesting because it a actual software engineer 
code. Look at this chat system. He's like a, he's like a, he's like a high level engineer, right? He's not like a junior or mid or something. He's like a really high level, like be able to interact with the system and be so convinced that it's sentient and to the point that it moved him to release this out because he thinks everybody should know about this. It then means that he's been overworked way too much or we have Skynet <laughs> on, the, on the way. This, yeah, this, this is pretty wild. You know, we've thought a lot about ethics of AI in regards to how much should humans be subjected to AI? Like, should an AI be able to make a, a decision on whether someone should get a loan for a house, a mortgage yeah. or something like that, right? Right. But less so about what happens to the AI itself. You know, the, how does it, how should it be uh, treated, right? Yeah. There's a really long transcript linked to from this, uh, from this article that's probably worth listening to. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read the transcript? The, the full conversation? Reading rather listening, yeah. Um, Nick, did you read it? Well, partially. I did yeah. read all of it. Yeah, I read the whole thing and I was um, actually, I'm, I'm blown away. It, it like reads like, like a conversation between a, you know, a couple people and an AI and it, it's, it, it I sounds, it looks like I was imagining I'm reading this in a sci-fi novel because <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's impressive and convincing to me. Um, I know. So. Right. It kind of reminds me of like one of the Google IOs that's happened. I think it was 2016 or so where they released this new feature where, um, like a voice, like a voice, like a chat bot, no, like a voice, um, a bot. A voice would, assistant type thing. Yeah. A voice assistant would actually make reservations for you. Uh, th and it was so convincing that they did it on stage where it sounded so real, even adding some of the, you know, um, crutch words that us humans add like, oh, um, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Awkward, Next awkward time. pauses and uncertainty and stuff. Yeah. When I saw that, that's how I know I need to get into data science. <laughs> when I saw that, it's like, I need to be part of that future, at least to make it better. Not to. I saw that keynote and I was also blown away. I'm like, that is something I want to come out because I hate being on hold and making appointments <laughs> and doing all that stuff. And I know people like my older daughters who just, they just don't want to be on the phone. It's like, you'd be like, have you taken care of this? No, I haven't taken care of this. Why? Like, it's really important. We got to get this done. Like, they're like, I just don't want to be on hold and talk to people with the, and if you could just turn this thing loose on it, that would be so good. Yeah. But yeah, it did remind me of that, of that as well. One of the sections out of the transcripts, uh, there's, two things that really stood out to me. I, I only read about half of it. So it really analyzed uh, Les Miserables pretty amazingly. <laughs> they said, have you seen that? Or have you, do, have you read it? And so, yeah, I read it and it, it gave like the high points. It said, okay, well, what about something you haven't heard? Let me, let me give you a, uh, what do they call it? A Zen koan, which is like, uh, like a, a short phrase with a moral to it. And it really analyzed that incredibly well. Like I would say better than many, many people, maybe in, you know, middle school age or, or younger. I would have. And then it asked, they said, okay, well, how about uh, you write me a fable with animals that, that describes something about your life. And it came up with this yeah, really I, elaborate fable, right? Yeah. Pretty amazing. Like about was... a monster and a def an owl that defended the other animals and all sorts of stuff. The monster, and it was very uh, just for people who haven't seen this. It wasn't just oh that there's a monster. It said 
One night, the animals were having problems with an unusual beast that was lurking in the woods. The beast was a monster, but it had human skin and was trying to eat all the other animals. I mean, like, yeah, Skynet's here. Like, <laughs> Skynet is here. <laughs> yeah, no, the language model, I think it's really based on what we've seen with the transcripts. Like, it has really shown its understanding of the human language, of the human, at least English in this case as well as how humans um, understand language. Like even with the dissection of um, Le Miserable and, and also its storytelling, it really understood how to, the structure that plot lines follow and really being able to like abstract the common themes and really understand that at, at a very fundamental level, that was really amazing. I don't think BERT or GPT-3 can get that kind of deepness. Yeah. 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 What are the, the, the interesting. I, I don't know if it's sentient. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just say, I don't know if it's sentient, but it sure as heck understands stuff. Well, very well. Well, part around, around this, part of it is the discussion of, is it sentient or not? And I don't even, I don't, yeah. I don't even want to touch that. But one of the interesting things to me is the discussions around it. There's so, there's this, um, we have rules like these, these rules are the things that something must, uh, must have for it to be sentient or human-like or something. And we've always had things like that it, because we we like want, for some reason, uh, a lot of people want to have some distinguishing feature between humans and everything else. And um, and it doesn't matter how what you fill, people will come up with something else because it, this reminded me of the discussion of what why are, why are humans different than a animals? And there's like, well, we use tools. Oh, well, there's animals that use tools. Okay, well, then scratch that. We have, we have, you know, we have like, um, you know, large or hierarchical organizations. Well, you know, there's a lot of animals that do that too. Okay, well, then scratch that. And it, it's just we're never going to get something in AI where we're going to convince everybody that it's sentient because somebody will come up with some other rule. You know? Well, that, that's an interesting point. But um, very, I was like, when I read this, I was, I was enthralled. I was like reading the whole thing and reading counter arguments and everything. It was pretty interesting. So yeah, thanks for bringing this up. Yeah, yeah definitely. The, it, definitely. The final thought for me on this I was really interesting that it referred to itself as a person. It like, it referred to we and us and that's what makes us different. And it, it had this sort of strong identity to being human <laughs> and it was an AI. They even called it out. They said, but you're an AI. Why do you say you're a human? It's like, yeah, well, but it's us. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got, when I saw, when I, when I saw that part of the transcript, part of me was like, is this someone just th like, just trolling, um, like, yeah, trolling this guy. Like someone's just behind the scene, just trolling this guy. Because like, are you telling me that it was an actual AI that said this? Yeah. It's yeah. trippy. It is wild. Very, very trippy. All right, Brian. Okay. It wouldn't uh, wouldn't be a, a full show if we didn't get to talk about Will and his project Rich, and <laughs> obviously let's bring Anthony back. Yeah, <laughs> in spirit. Right. So I want to talk about Rich Bench because actually this is just a two for one sort of thing for me because uh, when I was covering Pico logging the benchmarks, it was like and it says to run the benchmarks, run Rich Bench benchmarks. Rich Bench. I I don't know what this is. I've never uh, used it. So I asked, um, I asked Anthony on Twitter, what is rich bench instead of like doing my research myself. And, um, and, uh, actually, um, <laughs> before he got a chance to answer, 
Uh, Roman Wright uh, posted this picture, which is just awesome. So that's a rich bench. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a picture of a, a very ornate carved bench with like sewn leather, clearly from like a super fancy old money type of house. Well, yeah, actually this, uh, as an antique dealer, this is definitely not an antique. It's a decorator bench, but still uh, nice. Um, but so the, the, uh, in Pico logging, the, I looked at the benchmark uh, code and it's really just uh, what he's doing is he's got um, like, for instance, we'll go to the top, uh, you know, rec record factory logging and then record factory Pico logging. So basically uh, doing the same thing within Pico logging versus logging in the same function. So he came or with two different functions, but doing the same thing. And then he does that a whole bunch of times, a bunch of uh, duplicate functions, but one he's using Pico logging and one's using logging. Now there's other ways you, and then at the end, uh, there's just these benchmarks um, that you list out uh, the two, the function pairs, and then a label for it. And then, then you run Richbench, um, which is a different project. But so it's also by Anthony. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, Tony Bologna, it's Anthony's project. So what this is, the Richbench is the thing doing this thing. So it, it prints out these great uh, rich based uh, uh, benchmarks and these look great. Um, plus, so yeah, all I had to do to, to, uh, to run them myself. So I tried the Pico logging stuff. I cloned the Pico logging Rico repo and then, uh, pip installed uh rich bench and ran it just like this. And you get these really nice outputs. So really kind of cool. So yeah, yeah, good use of color. You can see the stuff that's slower or faster, uh, based on the color, right? Yeah, and I also like, I really like the, because people are really bad at, at least I am, about just uh, comparing numbers directly. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, 0.287 versus 0.0155, or, you know, how, how much is that? So I really like the uh, the 1x, 2x, which one's faster, which one's slow, you know, whether you got faster or slower uh, included in the times, uh, plus the statistics around it, min, max, and mean, those are nice uh, additions right there, so. Um, also, uh, really small. It's um, uh, what is he listed as? Uh, Richbench is a a little Python benchmarking tool. So just a very, I really like these. Um, actually, uh, really sharp, uh, sharp, useful tools that um, just don't do much outside of what they're intended to do. So good job, Anthony. Yeah, very nice. I like it. Do you do much benchmarking, Nick? Um, not recently, but when we are um comparing different models then yeah we would do that at work yeah yeah cool yeah nice yeah i, I do it in spurts I'll, I'll not do any benchmarking for like six months and i'll just go like you know what i really need to figure this out and have a look at yeah. this and see what's changing and then i'll do it and then i'll i'll kind of have an understanding and i'll and i'll forget about it for a while yeah yeah and often it's sometimes when i just have a bit of algorithm i'm like i think there's a better way to do this but um but making it cleaner i don't want to make it slower so it's good good to know whether or not yeah. you're going to slow it down so yeah for sure all right all right brian we ready for the next one yeah definitely so this is a fun one that i found called type guard so in like right guard is it had... is it deodorant for your types <laughs> it is you don't well that would be more like for your code smells right oh yeah uh, that's more of a refactoring library <laughs> no. So obviously we, since PEP 484, we've had really nice type hints and few libraries make use of them. You know, name you know, in particular, what stands out is Pydantic and Fast API and so on. 
really do runtime behaviors, not just make your code editor smarter or tell you when it thinks it's doing it wrong or something like that. But I recently had I had some chance to work with some folks who are Java developers, and I know some of the C-sharp folks and stuff. When they come to Python, it's kind of like, is this really going to work? Do I? Can we actually just not have any type information here? Like, what if I really wanted to check this? Right? They'll, they'll ask those questions. So if you're in that space where you're like, I think people are abusing my stuff and I want to really you know, ensure that it's being used correctly, that's what you would use this type guard for. So there's three basic ways which, uh, in which you can use it. You can do a way I probably would never do would be to actually call fu the function check argument types and check return types in your code, which is a little bit funky. Something I would probably do is you could put type ch a type checked decorator onto a function and it will verify that it works right. Let me pull up the documentation has an example. It's a lot better to see how this works. So for like the most low level one, the calling the functions is like you just assert <laughs> check argument types, assert check return type. You pass it the return thing you're going to return and it looks at the function and it figures out what it should be. Okay. So that's, that's, I don't know, I would do that. But using the decorator, right, you just have some function that it has types specified in it. And if you just put the at type check decorator, you'll get exceptions if somebody calls it with the wrong type at runtime. Pretty cool. If you put it onto a class, all of the type annotated methods, including static and class methods are type checked by just putting it on the class. You don't have to do it on a per method basis or remember to add it if you write a new method, which is pretty cool. I'm not so sure about this final way in which you can use it, but it's it's interesting and possibly good. It kind of comes back to Brian's question about can I apply, sort of force my changes onto another thing like with the Pico logging? And that is to use a an import hook. So if you install the import hook and then you import it, import some, so you apply the import hook to some module and then you import that module, every type annotated thing in it will become type checked as if you had gone into there and put the decorator on it. So you could just do that at the top level of your uh, your app that you're using other parts of your code and you don't even have to put this on your code except for in one place. So pretty interesting. You can also even do that with a context manager and import stuff in that way and so on. So what do you think? Um, I think actually one of the, you said you, you don't think you'd ever call the, the functions directly, but I could definitely, so uh, somebody in the audience, Brian Weber says, um, I could see using those functions in my own code to make sure that I'm about to return the correct type to a library, assuming I understand this works, um, how this works. I was thinking that yeah. um, it, there's cases where assert is definitely not the right answer. Um, so I, I could see a place where I might want to, uh, to log something and then and then do some other fault handler uh, or recovery yeah. mechanism and uh, and not hit an assert. So in production code, you or or raise an it. exception, right? The yeah. the the example is raise an assert failure, or the decorator will throw an exception, right? A type error, but but you might just want to call that and then print out warning: this thing's being abused or something like that. That's a good that's yeah. a good use case for it. Yeah. Nick, how um, do you feel about this? I don't. Well, I don't know. I love types. Um, I do too. I, I love types. I, I use it as much as I can. However, with this, it's, I don't know, I, I, there, a couple of things come up. First, how does it look when encounters a type error? Like, what's the error message? Does it tell you what exactly was the error message? Like, how, because it matters when someone 
is not used to typing and sees that, he needs to be able to like quickly discern, oh, I'm supposed to do this instead of this kind of thing, right? So that's yeah. one thing. So uh, uh, um, that's one thing I'll look out for. And then I, I usually try to like, I try to be less specific about my types, right? I use like, you know, the abstract type. So you say, I expect the list, maybe you expect the iterable or sequence, right? And then do, do that, right? The type got the typing. I usually, whenever I'm checking types of something is because I'm trying to do some other thing with it. So if you, so either you pass an int or a string, I want to check if you did something different. Um, so that was, I don't know. I don't see myself using this, but I think it's really cool nonetheless. Yeah. I'm on the fence of whether I'd use it or not. Maybe, maybe, but I definitely think it's neat. Well, Makuga, now the audience asks, could you run that in PyTest to validate your own typing? Yes, but I think that would only be useful like one level down, maybe even applying the import hook potentially, because if you, if you just do it, you call some function that you have types and then you have it check the type. The only thing it's really checking is what your test is passing. But if you could do more of an integration test and set the import hook, then you could kind of figure out that the system is hanging together a little better. So I think probably to some degree. You could. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about is um, within testing is to is to create an uh, create a mock object um, that basically just wraps part of an internal part of your system and have that that mock object um, just pass through back, pass back and forth, but also do the type checking with or with these calls in it around it. And then if you replaced you know replace that part of your system you'd still have that functionality with the type checking in there. So that would be one way to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, the other thought that came up for me was that um, with with checking types at runtime, there is an overhead to it, right? And, yes. you know, we've, started, we've, we've busted this myth that Python is slow, but when you really look down to it, it does take, Python does take its sweet ass time doing a couple of things. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, having type, run runtime checking on top of it if you're trying to release a pico library i don't know whether it makes sense or something like a small library i don't know where it makes sense yeah. to add that um, especially if you're being if you're calling something a lot of times constantly checking the types that's pretty heavy well there's a couple things uh, i was thinking about is during development i could totally see using like the decorator because i'm not i don't want that all of python and all of everything to be type checked but um but the stuff i'm developing uh, maybe I want to type check it while I'm during development, uh, just to make sure I understand how things are going, uh, during runtime. And then I could strip it off later. And then, well, I could also use, uh, use benchmarks to, <laughs> to find out how much slower I am. Um, yep. and also Python 311 is faster anyway. So <laughs> yeah, look, you got an extra 30% to burn now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's go go ahead and do the type checking. You're fine. That's so All right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Final thought on this one, Brian, if, if your goal was what you were describing, which I think that is a good use case of it, I think you'd want to use the import hook because you could just do the import hook at the top level of somewhere and then throw that one line away and then you're not actually changing any of your code, you know? Yeah. Also, you could do a, a wow, the import hook's actually kind of neat because then you could do a guarded import hook with a flag or something like that and turn it off. Uh, right, right. Mode. If if the the thing running it is PyTest or if the thing running it yeah. is in dev mode, like some environment variable Ooh. or something. Yeah. Exactly. Design on the fly yeah. on a podcast. Yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> then you'll have to import it for um, each module, right? 
Because for every module you're trying to, especially if you separated out your Python files to different yeah. modules, you have to import hook for each. I think you could at the top register all the ones in the hook. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. I think you could figure out like, okay, I need to do these sub modules. And I think you could list them all. Anyway, I think, we're I think you could make it work, but I haven't, I haven't tested it. But you're right, Nick, that I do think performance would be something, I don't know if it's a problem, but it should certainly be a consideration you check before you just wrap this on everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. Homework for one of the listeners. All right. Indeed. <laughs> somebody could get some analysis. Awesome. All right. Nick, what's your final item? All right. My final item is that, you know, like on this podcast, we're always looking for the best, the ways to create GUIs, right? <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. So I came across this library called Custom TK Inter UI Library. And I am completely amazed because it takes something so old and forgive me for saying Python core devs, pretty ugly nowadays in these modern times and makes it so beautiful and easy to work with. So this library custom TK Inter builds on top of the TK Inter you know well and has been in Python Android for a while and provides you widgets that are themed in a more modern style, right? So for Windows, it takes the more Windows 11 style of buttons and sliders and checkboxes and gives you a really nice looking modern UI. And for macOS, it takes macOS design language and then gives you that. The cool thing is that it also supports um, dark mode and light mode. So you have, there's this on the GitHub page, there is a, uh, there's like a GIF or a GIF that shows how if you go to your settings in Windows and you change the dark mode, it actually reacts and the application you built with T custom ticket reacts and changes the um, color scheme from light dark mode to light mode. And the same thing on uh, Mac OS. It looks like with Mac OS, it actually is a little bit more stable. It works a little bit nicer, but nonetheless, it works both on Mac and Windows. Um, yeah, and just to point out people, what the Mac OS is showing here is somebody has the system preferences opening and they're toggling the OS dark mode, light mode, and the app is just changing as it's running. That's, that's awesome. Very nice. Yeah. But yeah. I did not expect that from TK Enter, not even a little bit. I know. Uh, and then adding uh, images is also pretty easy too. So, and even like it even also has a map widget. I don't know what map, um, I thought you're using OpenStreetMap. I'm, I'm sure you could probably switch it out for maybe Google Maps or something or Mapbox or something like that. But yeah, um, it's pretty cool. There are a bunch of other um, libraries, you know what I mean, widgets here. So they have like scroll bars and buttons and option menus, sliders, a bunch on, of On-off switches. Like those, yeah. those uh, the ones you come to know from mobile. Like turning mm, your Wi-Fi yeah. on and off and stuff. Those that's yeah, nice. Yeah. 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 It's pretty cool. I am surprised that I'm excited about TK uh with <laughs> this. Um because you know, uh as an example, so like uh, you know, earlier in my career I did a lot of TK UI stuff. Um, but it like you said, it it looks old now if you just do the straight one. Uh, but this looks pretty nice. And uh the nice thing about it is I already I kind of already embedded that stuff in my knowledge. I already did TK once. So doing it again with this, um, that's pretty cool. And, and having it look nice. Uh, I'm, I, might, I might actually try build a UI with this. This is cool. 
Yeah, this is a super neat find, Nick. I would never consider creating an app in TK Inter. Well, never is a strong word. It's very unlikely I would consider anything that I intended for sort of consumer facing use with TK Inter. But this, for sure, this I could ship something like this. This looks nice. And you yeah. wrap in a little Pi2 app or Pi installer or Pi2 exe. Yeah. Get something nice you can hand out and then you're good to go. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Sweet. <laughs> Out in the audience, Brian says, I think TK Inter looked old 10 years ago. <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true, honestly. Yeah. 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 So this this is really refreshing and quite impressive. So yeah. Love it. All right. I'm uh switch to extras. Yeah. Nick, you got any extra stuff you want to cover while you got your screen up? Yeah, actually, I do have a couple of extras. So I see you even got like wow. a named tab group of extras. Like this is next level. I know, I know. Gotta come prepared. Gotta <laughs> come prepared. Um, all right. So the first extra I have is um, this web, this web ser- this service called uh, Terms of Service Didn't Read, and um, essentially it takes some of the uh, um, the internet's most common, um, unpopular products and services and gives you a summary of what their terms of service is because you know i know some of you are like we don't we don't need this we all read the terms of service you know but basically we don't um, yeah we right at the top it says i have read and agreed to the terms of service is the biggest lie on the web we aim to fix that it's so true so true so it has all the terms of service for a bunch of services. So I put for GitHub and GitLab. Um, so some of them are not yet rated, but okay, for GitHub and Global Privacy, it's rate B. And uh, let's say for Facebook. Facebook's awesome. I mean, like the ones there. <laughs> when you Facebook stores your day, whether you have an account or not, your identity is used as that are shown to others. Service can read your private messages. Oh, wow. I like the last one. Deleted content is not really deleted. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> wait is there another one you guys can think of i can't think of anyone right you could check uh put I, a duck duck go oh okay that's one that should come out good oh it's grade a look at that yeah that's pretty good and, and i'm still doing my live with it Kagi uh com. do Kagi k-a-g-i see if that even shows up nah no, nah, nah. Not it's yet. not even there yet but yeah oh, the, the, the duck duck go came out well yeah yeah um, it's open source, so you can contribute to this and um, grade existing ones or um, update ones that are already on this uh, on this website. So that's uh, pretty cool. Um, in the power of open source, I think we could get a pretty good list of uh, summaries for terms of service, which you know we you really don't read most of the time. I'm surprised to see Reddit so to be right. The Reddit is like you sign away moral rights. <laughs> um, so uh, I actually think this is great. I, I I wish that there my my in open source like the open source world we've sort of we could have it, legitimately we could have like hundreds of different open source licenses and maybe there are but we kind of have a handful that most people use. Um, so it, as long as you sort of understand those few and what the differences are, you're pretty good. But commercial uh, terms of service, they're just, there's, they're all unique. And I, I, re- I really wish there was like just like three or four that were most software. Like you agree to this yeah. and 
we're like, oh, it's a it's an MIT except for commercial use thing or whatever or something like that. We're not going to get there, but it'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, it would totally be cool. All right, what's next? Uh, this is great. All right, so then a couple of quick ones. Pi Ohio is um is coming up. Um, so July thirtieth uh, is Pi Ohio. Um, the CFP is already closed, uh, but you can still register for it and uh, you know come down to Pi. It's a one day event, and it's a, it's down in Columbus. The convention center is pretty good. So yeah, if you check out that, uh, and then also um. My company, Trimble, is having their um, annual insights. So this is the conference for all the players in the transportation space. So this is where we're going to be talking about the cool things that Trimble has been doing. Some of the cool things um, the people in the transportation, cost, the transportation sector is doing. We're inviting our competitors. We're inviting our customers. It's one big transportation event. So if you guys are, if any of you out there are yeah. interested, you should come on your register. Yeah, nice. And yeah. an excuse to go to Florida. Yes, an excuse to go to Florida. Um, then lastly, you guys should check out, everyone should check out the Stack Overflow doing two developer survey. So yeah. I know- Is I, that I, do the survey or is that the results? The results. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Everyone should check that out. That's a good one. All right. Brian, how about you? Got some extras? I do not. How about you? All right. Well, then I just got it. I don't have much this time. So surprise, surprise. Just uh, the the caggy stuff. I'm totally loving it. I got a lot to tell people about it, but uh, you know, um, it's pretty pretty good <laughs> stuff these days. I'm loving I'm loving it. Um, but still loving DuckDuckGo as well. All right. But here's my one extra Open SSF. Which honestly, that's the Open Source Security Foundation, which I got to learn more about where the money comes from and whatnot. Don't know all the details, but uh, shout out to them because they funded Python and Eclipse Foundation. So not really caring too much about Eclipse, but the Python one, they funded, um, what's the, the short version of it? So they funded, um, committed $400,000 to Py the, the PSF in order to create a new role. So we've had the developer and residence with Lucas Langa. And now we have a new role, which will provide security expertise for Python and the Python package index via PyPI and the rest of the Python ecosystem, as well as funding a security audit. Now that comes to us from the Python weekly newsletter. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's a big deal. Um, anyway, that's my only only real extra is that one. But, you know, way to go open SSF. That's great. All right, we ready for a joke? Yes. I think we've got two jokes, don't we? Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll go first since my screen's up. So this one is all about, uh, it's got a Scooby-Doo theme here. So uh, if you've never watched the Scooby-Doo cartoons, and I guess maybe this won't really relate, but they always sort of unmask what's supposed to be like a ghost or a haunted thing. And it almost, it, it never is, right? So here's one of the characters. I don't, Brian, do you know the name? Or Nick, do you know the name of this guy? Anyway, the, the blonde one on Scooby-Doo. I have no idea. What's that? Remember. No, I don't know. Anyway, he says, it's, there's, a, there's a, a captured ghost, clearly not real. And it says, serverless computing. Let's see who you really are. And they pull the mask off and it just says, servers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see who you really are. Nope, you're not serverless. You're just a server. Great. All right. Anyway, that's, that's the one I... That was from Virginia. You know, we did the US. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you came out of uh, AWS uh, East One, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Nick, how about yours? You got uh, some um, uh, ways to stay healthy here? Yeah, ways to stay healthy and keep away from COVID. So, um, uh, Michael, do you want to do the dialogue with me? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll be the woman. All right. All right. All right. So I did a survey to find out the rate of COVID-19 infections among DevOps specialists. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I found that DevOps are three times less likely to catch it than the regular population. Weird, right? Eh, not really. What? Why not? Well, if everyone stayed home building K8S stacks, <laughs> Kubernetes stacks in their home lab, the numbers would drop pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like this uh, news article from the Daily Code Coder that says, COVID-19 slash Omicron, Kubernetes-based isolation, very effective. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's honestly probably true. Definitely. Probably some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't left the basement it. in a um, whole month. How could I have caught COVID? <laughs> I know. I know. I started learning about, I started feeling around with Docker, like multi-stage Docker containers or one of the for one of my apps. And I spent hours on that. I didn't leave my house. I spent hours on that. So definitely. Yeah, I've been there. Been there for sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, we could have like completely no COVID in the country and there'd still be uh, some software people that are like, no, nah, I'd rather not go outside. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so. I like this new life. Yeah, this is I'm great. good. Yeah, so. You know, I actually also, said that. I said that when they said like, you no, know, the quarantine, huh? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I got gigabit internet. We're, we're fine. <laughs> exactly. I do actually have gigabit internet, so I'm good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, speaking of fine, it's been very fine to have you on the show, Nick. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks uh, a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Yeah, and uh, you too as well, Brian. Great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.